record. La da da. Yep. La da 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 da. Man, I want to take a nap. I kind of do too, actually. It's been, a, it's been a week. There's some of that fucker, that fucker on Twitter. This is being this is being recorded during the coronavirus, the beginnings of the coronavirus <laughs> quarantine that has now entered its sixteenth month, probably by the time this comes out. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the very beginnings, and some fun guys on Twitter was like, Shakespeare wrote King Lear while he was in lockdown because of the plague, which I don't even think is true. <laughs> But uh, all this stuff is making me want to do is just lay in bed all day and not leave. I think everyone just needs to take one day this week and just sit and do nothing. Yeah, just just unwind, detach from the internet. Mm-hmm. The, the, this will be uploaded like right after we record. I'm not. This this will just be like a fun little thing. We're recording ET the extraterrestrial on this episode of Happy Amblin. Um, but the bonus little feature for for you patrons for uh, for sticking through with us and. Uh, given the state of the world is uh, no, this has to this has to be right part now. of the episode. I just demand I, we need this for historical purposes. So that, oh yeah, in case things go so that future generations worse. know that when the world was on the brink, we still found time to talk about Steven Spielberg's E.T. This will be um, a little uh, tableau of times past, and uh, we'll we'll see where we are when. When this episode gets released. We'll see if, if one or both of us has died <laughs> by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> so, and I, wanted, I, just want, I just want the people to know that if, if I'm the one that goes down, I regret everything. I died full of anger and regret and disgust. I did not go peacefully into that good night. E.T. Welcome back to another episode of Happy Amblin. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today, as always, is Macaringo. Yep. Yep, yep. We, we did a little opening already. That's okay. Yeah, I, um, I was taking ET. a big swing of water. Yeah, uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. We're talking about a Steven Spielberg film today. Uh, last time on the Steven Spielberg section of the Adam Sandler Steven Spielberg podcast, um, we didn't even really talk about a Steven Spielberg film, quote-unquote. We kind of did, we kind of didn't with Poltergeist. Uh, that's a, I still very positive uh, on that film and uh, might actually be good for some quarantine viewing if you're listening during that. Yeah. And uh, E.T., this was a really smart double feature, I think, that Matt designed because these were basically going to be the same film at some point <laughs> with uh, Night Skies. Yeah, we talked about that we talked heavily. talked a little bit about it. Um, no, we talked about that mm-hmm. in the Poltergeist episode, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up again mm-hmm. because I I really like just the, the history behind that. Yeah. And um, at, at one point, I think it's also important to note, this one I do forget if we brought up on the Poltergeist episode. But Steven Spielberg, because he was kind of getting, like, the short end of the stick critically a little bit um, from, like, the snobbier film critics at the time, where they're like, well, he's just doing other stuff people have done before. He needs to become a serious artist, you know, so he can really see what he's about. And so he's developing something, um, a film called, like, Growing Up, I believe, mm-hmm. that was going to be, like, a, a tale about, like, children, and, like, it was going to be, like, a straight drama. And then, you know, of course, that does not happen. <laughs> 
and that becomes uh that also becomes part of like ET's origins where it's it's about um uh kids growing up in in I believe California, right? This is this takes place in California. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. San Fernando Valley, yes. And uh and it's a story about uh, a young boy named Elliot who's um the middle child in his family and his parents have have gone through a divorce. We don't see the father ever. Um, we we only see the mother, and um, uh, it was a big part of Spielberg's youth growing up because it, his parents were also separated, I believe, at one point. And uh, it's it's a very personal film. Obviously, it's E.T. You know what the fuck E.T. is. <laughs> but I, I just want to highlight that the history was was very cute and nice, and I I think it's it's yeah. fun history to learn about. Interesting origin for uh, E.T. It would be a damn shame if this film was the target of accusations of plagiarism by a foreign director. Oh, that's what you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, okay, yes, yes. Um, Do you you want to save that for the end? I think we we can save that. That's a good little uh, tee-up of something that we can talk about later. Yeah, I had not seen this film in many, many years until uh, I started preparing for this podcast again. And boy, when I rewatched it, all the memories of young Diego uh, watching this film after his parents' divorce, uh, who had trouble making friends in school, all those memories came rushing back in behind my eyelids, and uh, that did a number on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say this: this is probably not even like the best Spielberg film like that we've talked about, but it's probably the one that makes me feel like the happiest. At least, like it, it's really like a magical film. Before we get into all the, uh, we'll call it nitty gritty aspects of uh, the film itself. It, it's a. Uh, this is one that reminds you, like, that movie magic can be like a real thing. I think. That's a, my quick little takeaway. Yeah, there. that's a take. Yeah. Uh, let me take you on a little journey with this film. Uh, my experience sitting down to rewatch it. I also had not watched E.T. in a long time. And the the last time I remember sitting down trying to watch it, I didn't really make it through the movie. And I and it wasn't like I put it on the background. I put it on specifically to watch it, and I kind of, like, zoned out. And that was, like, a few years ago. I don't remember the circumstances. I hadn't watched this movie in such a long time. I didn't even own a copy of it. Uh, which I went out and I purchased just for this retrospective. And uh, I got it used on a Blu-ray, and I found out why it was used, because the DVD menu's a little fucked up. Um, uh-huh. But not enough to, like, ruin anything. It's just kind of, like, annoying. But the movie plays fine. But yeah, I hadn't owned I never owned it on DVD, even. Um was a v most i owned it as a vhs tape and i do remember watching it a lot as a kid and i also um my parents divorced when i was young but i gotta be honest et for whatever reason um has never really held a special place in my heart as other films have you know Mm-hmm. Um, there people will talk about E.T. like it's like this seminal moment for them, and it, it never really has for me, even though it contains 
all the ingredients of a movie I like. And it's also a movie where it undeniably just works, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. It's undeniably a great film when you watch it. But uh, I I just, I I had, I I honestly had a bit of trepidation to revisit it. Because I I remember that one time I tried to sit down to watch it and I didn't really get much out of it. And I was worried that would happen again. I didn't want to be like that guy who's like, yeah, I don't see what the big deal is, you know? You don't want to be that asshole when it comes to E.T. Yeah, if you're out there, Sean. Uh, oh, hey. I remember your Jaws episode. Oh, did, did, did okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I thought he maybe also shit-talked E.T., which would have been interesting. No, no, I just remember his Jaws take, which um, is, like, insane. Yeah, you know, but it's one of those things. I think it's also the thing of, like, E.T. has been imitated and parodied so much in my lifetime that it's, like, the images are just everywhere and they've lost kind of their specialness that they might have had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I honestly felt the same way with like Terminator 2, where Terminator 2 was a movie I watched a ton as a kid. And then I went to rewatch it a few years ago and I was like, it's a good movie. I never need to watch it again. Oh, okay. okay. And, um, and again, it's not like that's not coming from a place of like, actually, this movie's bullshit. It's just like, whatever attracted me to Terminator 2 as a child, I just don't, it's like Ben, like, just crushed out of me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just past the prime, so I was a little trepidatious to rewatch it. I sit down, and I want to say, I'm watching it, and again, it's like, this is like one of Spielberg's best-looking films. The score is perfect. The sound design's amazing. All these elements just come together and work in ways that are hard to like describe. And I'm just not vibing with it, like the whole movie. Mm. And I'm just not really getting it. Um, and I'm like, I'm trying to figure out like what, a what what could I possibly say that no one else has said. And B, I'm trying to find like my own way into it. I'm, I'm even trying to like go like, well, what did I feel when I watched it as a kid? Because I even feel like whatever emotions I had as a child watching it, I do not have anymore. And I'm not saying that in like a negative way. I just you grow up at some point, and, like certain emotions kind of fall away. You don't think about things. You don't feel the same way about stuff. You know, there was a point in my life when like the most important things in it were like. Super Mario 64 and Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> and that's something that just will never, ever happen again. Um, so I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm mostly just, like, just trying to get through it. Uh, we get to the end, the ending, the final act. E.T. dies, and I suddenly burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I just sobbed for, like, the last, like, 15, 20 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and even having done that, I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> it's honestly, I can't put my finger on why this movie works as well as it does. And I think it's, like, that's an impossible task. <laughs> and I've read like other takes of it. I was re- I was trying to find like other angles. I actually I wanted to do a whole thing where I really like delved into it and I wanted to like read like really diverse opinions on it and I had like all these books lined up at the library and then this fucking corona thing hit. 
And then I was like all paranoid, so I'm not leaving the house. And now I'm definitely not leaving the house. <laughs> and so that was when I messaged you. Like whenever when I decided that like I'm not leaving the house for like the next few weeks, um, I, that's when I messaged you. It's like you want to record ET finally. Yeah. <laughs> and uh-huh. I had like all this because I wanted to find something. I wanted to like take it apart and put it back together, and I couldn't find it in my time except for uh, oddly enough I read Roger Ebert's uh, review he did for his great movies entry have you ever read that I have not read that but I did watch the uh, the clip of him and Siskel discussing it mm-hmm. and Poltergeist on the same episode oh that's interesting yeah very cool I'll put a little link on there because YouTube probably won't fuck me on that one mm-hmm. but uh, I'll also put a link in the description for, for people so here's a little bit We'll also be reviewing two eagerly awaited films from producer Steven Spielberg. The first is Poltergeist, a ghost story set in a modern suburban home, and E.T., the extraterrestrial, set in another suburban split level. This time, not visited by a ghost, but by a little outer space creature. Ebert wrote a really interesting review where he wrote it as a letter to his grandchildren. Wow. And he wrote it because they watched it all together for the first time, and he described their emotions as they watched it. And that's the only one where I think it get it kind of gets to the heart of why E.T. is such a special film. Because even with all the imitators out there, and this this becomes a type of film where, like, before it exists, like, I don't even know how the fuck anyone thought that this movie would be a good idea, other than the fact that Steven Spielberg wanted to make it. <laughs> and it's just it's such an odd idea when you're in a world where E.T. doesn't exist and then after it it becomes just such a pop of part of pop culture that it's like, oh, well of course E.T. exists. It's just <laughs> accepted that this was a movie that was always going to happen. And but there's something to this that really separates it and makes it like it's not my favorite Spielberg film. And it's not even my favorite of this. To, like I, I think a, a good example of an imitator is like the Iron Giant, mm-hmm. which is like very much the same structure as ET. And I probably like that movie more, but it's also undeniably a lesser version of what ET is going for. And ET is far and away the best version of this story. And I don't think it were I like I I don't think there's a concrete way to take it apart and put it together. I think this movie works in the way that like a sympathy sym- symphony does with rising like this this the rise and fall of emotions that and sounds and images all coming together to make this thing and. There's no, I don't, I don't know, like, there's definitely takes of it, um, I, which I certainly read up on, that, like, try to break down, like, how it's about, oh, the loneliness of being a child, or, um, people have read Jesus metaphors into it because of fucking course, and yeah. <laughs> there's all sorts of, like, very cynical, but, like, well-argued reviews about this being a perfect Reagan-era film, <laughs> and it's a very boomer film in a lot of ways. But I don't think any of those really get to it because I don't think what E.T. is can be put into words. In Like, words fail it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about it on a podcast. 
for an hour. <laughs> um, do you know Paul Bullock on Twitter? He does the Spielberg shot thread. Mm. He just completed it like two years ago or a year ago. It's like a hundred best Spielberg shots, and then he he sends out a tweet evoking like like what the image evokes. And he did one. It's number fifty six. I'm looking at it right now for the end of E. T. Where it's just Elliot's face. Looking up at the skies, E.T. goes home to his family. And uh, he says, The brilliance of this shot is its simplicity. Amongst the grandeur of E.T.'s finale, Spielberg concludes with a basic reaction shot that allows him to focus on the story's heart. A young boy's emotional empowerment, perhaps my favorite Spielberg shot ever. And I think that simplicity is really one of the defining works of Spielberg. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, that's, that's his whole thing. It's like, there's not a lot of moving pieces, like... On a, on a writing or plot level, it's all about just bringing out this real humanity in the story he's telling, you know? Yes. And uh, I think that's that's the heart of E.T. too. It's just a simple story about loneliness and, yeah. and connection. That That's what, like, makes it universal. Yeah. Another film I felt very similar emotions to, which might be an odd comparison, but Spirited Away... Uh, which is a movie that might actually be the the, the greatest film ever made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Spirited Away is so good. Um, I saw it on the big screen um, this year, and that too had a moment going into the ending where I just burst into tears watching it, and I didn't really expect that. Um, <laughs> and I think there, there, these movies, again, yeah, you're right, where there's just like a simplicity to it, but somehow, in that simplicity, the movies both end up kind of being about everything. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. uh, another odd comparison. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master is very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Although that movie's more, like, draws more attention to its moving parts. Mm -hmm. And its emotional friction than, say, either of the other two, which are more movies about like not feeling that friction yeah. and letting it wash over you, which is what everyone in the master is kind of struggling to do. <laughs> um, but I do feel actually Paul Thomas Anderson's work, a lot of his work vibes with this, but he does, he's a guy who very much likes drawing your attention to the machinery where Spielberg wants it to exist in the background. He wants to ease you into it the best way possible. Keep going down that master rabbit hole though. Cause like, I guess I don't see that as much because, like, I, I love Spielberg and I do think uh, he, this is going to be a, a, a weird pull, too. But, like, someone like Andrei Tarkovsky, mm. um, whose whose films are also very simple, like Stalker's just three dudes going to, like, this weird place in, in Russia. That's the premise of the film. That That's what the whole film is about. They go there. They come back as different people. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it's not like a complicated plot and even the the camel work's not complicated like there's this amazing shot um that i'll i'll share on twitter so it's not on the youtube so it does get fucked but um where they're they're walking through part of the zone the the three people in stalker and they're just by like this this rundown rusted car and the, the camera has them like walking over this this grassy knoll and the camera zooms out and it's almost like it's the landscape is changing as it zooms out and then there's a there's a house in the background that they end up going to. And it's a really simple filmmaking technique, but it feels like you're watching the landscape around them change. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not flashy. 
I think Spielberg does get flashy. I, I, I do think he's actually more flashy than, than at least newer Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson's early stuff, for sure, was very like, I just want to do Scorsese and stuff like that. You yeah, know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. He's he's a god. I mean, he's one of the best working in the business. Um, but I do think Spielberg's more flashy than No, no, Spielberg's definitely now. more flashy, but I think he doesn't want, like, I think Anderson, as, a, as clearly a film lover, and definitely as a guy who came out of, like, trying to be Scorsese, trying to be Altman, um... I think he loves drawing attention to the mechanics of the film itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas Spielberg, I think, indulges in those mechanics, but tries to keep it... Tries to keep the realm of the actual film, the making of the film, and the film itself kind of separated, if that makes sense. Okay, uh, yeah, that, I could I could buy that. Because I think with like something like The Master, something like There Will Be Blood, something like... Um, what we either have or will talk about, I'm not sure, <laughs> what the release order, um, Punch Drunk Love, where when you really break those stories down, they're very simple stories with very simple rise and fall, but they're told in ways that make you go like, wait, is there more here? And they draw attention to things that may be, you know, in lesser hands or less interested hands um, wouldn't go anywhere. Like, E.T. has the big thing where it's like, oh, it's about a little alien, but it also is so just natural about it. It just takes this fantastical element and just weaves it in, but not in a way where it's trying to evoke reality any in any way, um, mm-hmm. but almost like a sort of heightened emotion as opposed to reality. That, okay, we're, we're completely on the same page here. Then. Okay. Uh, th- this is the birth of that Amblin uh, logo, by the way, with with the Elliot and ET at the in front of the moon and everything, right? And is this Kathleen Kennedy's first producing credit on a Spielberg film? She was associate to Steven Spielberg on Raiders. Yep. Associate producer on Poltergeist and producer on ET: The Extraterrestrial. Yep, so this is where so, Kathleen yep. Kennedy enters the picture. Yep. Um, no one has complicated feelings about her. Yeah, no, she isn't somehow also to blame for the coronavirus if you go to some circles. Wait, what? you know what? No, <laughs> no I'm just fucking around, but it's like, they, I, I you know, that, like, like, somehow, there's a, you know that there's a group out there that if they could, they would blame her. Oh, yeah. You know. There's like real fucking problems in the world and people are like, you ruined Star Wars. She ruined Star Wars. You can ruin it, you know. <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy broke into my house and destroyed all my Star Wars stuff. <laughs> she also then zapped me with that Men in Black thing. And now I have no memories of Star Wars. Help me. <laughs> that's how things get ruined. I think that's the... You know what? I think that like you could almost see it in that way where it's people like that <laughs> to make this about Star Wars somehow. Of course. That, like, take this ownership of it. They're the scientists in this movie. They're the government trying to capture E.T. to figure out what it is. And Elliot is the true fan. (laughs) And Elliot, as the true fan, realizes that at some point you gotta let it go. And not in a... Not in a vindictive way. Not in a it's ruined or something and that's why you've got to let it go but in a you the, that moment happened and now the moment is past and now that moment is with you 
but you can't ever you can't hold on to that moment forever that's a really beautiful way of looking at it because i just rewatched fanboys which i'm pretty sure is the worst film ever made <laughs> why because you... I was like, well, every, everyone told me like I was wrong for liking it when I was when it came out and I was younger. Obviously, I gotta see it again. And it no, that is that's a strong contender for like the worst. <laughs> it's definitely the contender for like the worst one for for our times right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of talented people on screen in that film. No talented people behind it. Did uh did uh, and th- to bring up Ebert again? Didn't like Ebert give that like a one star review? And then was like, why would people waste their lives like this? Yeah. Like, that was his review. And then that turned into, like, a whole thing of people being, like, against Roger Ebert because, of course. Yeah, it's... That really is kind of, like, the... I think the official takeover online of people being like, no, the, we, we got to do it right by the fans kind of thing. Because, like, that's always kind of existed, like we've talked about many times on this podcast. Uh, but... So to kind of bring it around to E.T., those are the people that want things to grow up with them. Mm-hmm. The people behind something like Fanboy, something as evil and vile and despicable as a film like but Fanboy. But also thinks that it's, like, in the right. Like, Yeah, that's, that's what makes it so bad. It's, it's, not, it's not meditative about it at all. I heard, um, I, I've heard of the, have you ever heard of The Day the Clown Cried? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Jerry Lewis Holocaust film? <laughs> um, which is, I've heard what, cause you know, you, no one can see it, but there's like people who have, and they've like t- said what it's about. And like the vibe you get from that movie is that not only is it awful <laughs> and miscalculated and just wrongheaded, the whole movie is constantly like, you should be thanking me for this. <laughs> and I, I feel like fanboys <laughs> gives off a very similar vibe. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole part where they're, like, they're getting into a fight with Star Trek nerds, and so naturally the Star Trek nerds are, like, the uptight, and they talk like this, mm. and da da da, and it's, like, you're you're all losers. <laughs> like, there's nothing, obviously there's nothing wrong with enjoying these things, but the way they're painting them, like, on all sides of, like, the fandoms, just like, oh, no, these are just, you're just assholes. There's a very similar scene in Clerks 2, where, um... The, the Star Wars fan and the Lord of the Rings fan get in an argument about which is the better trilogy. Mm-hmm. And um, it ends with one of the characters, imply- the, the Star Wars fan, implying that the hobbits are gay. And that this is a thing that upsets the Lord of the Rings fan so much he vomits. See, but I have nicer feelings about Kevin Smith. I, I do not like Clerks too. There's a weird heart to a lot of... Uh, Kevin Smith stuff, but they're all like every one of his movies, even the ones I like. So actually, I really do kind of think that like Clerks Two is like really interesting. Um, but there's always a moment in even his best films where you're like, "Come on, man, you don't need to go there." Yeah, I think the thing about Kevin Smith is though, like, because he's a very vocal online nerd yeah. person too, like the dudes from Fanboys. But he's always like very empathetic. Like he 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 doesn't really like shit on a lot of people. <laughs> Except At for least, the like anymore, maybe like before it was worse, but like, well, except for the I, I, montage I at the end of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where they they use all the money they made off of the Blunt Man and Chronic movie to go around and beat up all the people that talk shit about him on the internet. 
Oh, that's funny. That's, but see, that that's like ridiculous. Well, yeah, that's that, that's the thing. There's like it's, yeah. but it's it's like trying like a lot of Kevin Smith movies. Again, and I, I I'm a defender of his, um, but a lot of them are always like kind of having their cake and eating it too. You know, to- totally agree. And I actually do not like Kevin Smith movies. I just like <laughs> I just think he's like a, a, a he seems like a decent dude. Yeah, I just Kevin Smith. It's one of those things where uh, his movies came along at like the exact right age for me. Mm-hmm. Which is like thirteen. <laughs> oh no! To- I mean, I liked Clerks too, and I saw it in high school. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I I got older a little bit, and that was one of the first big ones where I rewatched it, and I was just like, "Oh shit!" Didn't Clerks two get like a standing ovation this. at the Cannes Film Festival? You know what? That's so like bizarre and off kilter. If that's true, that would be perfect. I think it did. I really think it did. That's oh my the the crowd that booed only God forgives like. A standing ovation for a clerk suit. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> I don't know. I think some the the French they love Jerry Lewis. Who fucking knows? But <laughs> um, remember how yeah, we the, found the, the out? The French are so foreign. I can't remember what episode it was, but we we I think we found out live that Ernest Klein wrote Fanboys. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. I was gonna go That's double. That's what inspired the rewatch. Yeah, uh, I was gonna go find out. I also discovered that Kevin Spacey was a producer. This is the most evil film ever made. <laughs> yes, it kind of is. How the fuck does that happen? What? Oh my god! And of course, wow. like, oh. it was released by the Weinstein Company. <laughs> <laughs> It is just a nexus of vile bullshit. It's so weird. It's Wow. Oh, no. And the cultural relevancy of that film is like zero. No one remembers it. I think at most people remember seeing a trailer for it on some DVD that was also released by the Weinstein Company. Like, I'm willing to bet that I, the only reason I know about it is because I own Clerks 2 on DVD, and there was probably a preview for Fanboys on it. Well, it was big in, like, like uh, internet subcultures because it was like, oh, they're making the movie for the fans kind of thing. That that was kind of kind of it. I don't think the premise is terrible. <laughs> you know? it's. Uh-huh. I think that's a very funny idea about, like, trying to steal... The rough cut of Phantom Menace before it comes out. I, you know, it's just about a very specific time in nerd cultures, but you kind of need, you need a very, uh, more, I don't know. <laughs> that's it. That's no, you, a, you need, you need to be willing to look at things like ethically and organically. You yeah. know, it can't just be like the fans need, need it because they've been supporting it for all this time. It needs to be like, well, this isn't really ours. There need there needs to be some discussion there, and the film is not interested in discussion. The film is interested in like crashing Star Trek conventions and uh, celebrity cameos. Like Carrie Fisher's in it, God rest her soul, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the dude gets to say like "You're my only hope" to her, and it's like I'll get it because it's in Star Wars, and every cameo is exactly like yeah, that. Yeah, isn't Kevin Smith getting a blowjob in that or something? Oh, God, I don't remember that. I remember he has, like, a scene where, like... That's probably true. He's, like, either blowing someone or getting a blowjob or something. Um, someone... Ethan Suplee shows up in that as Harry Knowles, the disgraced oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, film critic fuck. from Ain't It Cool News. Yeah, he still has a job. What a fucking well, yeah, awful it isn't, like, culture. It's his website, right? So... 
yeah. it's hard to get fired from your own website. Uh, did you ever see um, Welcome to Eltingville? No. Did you ever see what that? Is that? Um, it was a pilot for a cartoon that they aired on Adult Swim. They, it never went to series. It's based on a comic, which I haven't read. Um, and it's a, it's it's like um, for like nerds and like they have the the Eltingville f- nerd fan club or whatever. And it was, this was like 2002, and I believe the comic's even older than that. And this is something that, like, I understand why I didn't go to the series, because all the characters are despicable and unlikable. (laughs) But that it somehow has the finger on the pulse of, like, how toxic and bad nerd culture really is. And it's from, like, 2002. And from what I understand, the comic actually like had a follow up where they they followed up on these characters like ten years later, like where they all are, and it's again very interesting, where like most of them are like live miserable lives, and like one of them got out of it and like decided to fix their life. <laughs> and it's I don't know I just I found it interesting because that's it feels like the like antithesis to fanboys. Um, I've wanted to talk about it because it's like I I sat down to watch it in like a. Oh yeah, I remember watching that once, like at eleven at night in two thousand two. I should rewatch it, and then I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> and that whole—it's a pilot, and the whole like episode of it is about them, two characters fighting over a collectible Boba Fett action figure. And then, and and it ends, and it, it features them getting into a nerd debate, where they have to see who knows like the most trivia about nerd stuff. Christ. And it's so awful where it's like, it's also reminds me of Ready Player One where that movie's just constantly, that book more specifically is constantly like throwing references out to you. (laughs) But like in a celebratory way, whereas Welcome to Elftingville, it's like, this is like sick. (laughs) These people are bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I, unfortunately, it's one of those things where I know if the series had gotten popular, like, these characters would have been worshipped because no one would have got it. It would have been, like, Fight Club. Oh, God. But, yeah. like, removed from it, it's kind of inadvertently brilliant. So I'd recommend checking that out. Okay. Welcome to Elkingville? Welcome to Elkingville. Yeah, Eltingville. Eltingville. Yeah. Eltingville. And you can find all that, like, it's like a 20-minute episode on, like, YouTube. And it's just interesting, because it's right before nerd culture goes mainstream, but it's after Gamergate now, so, like, it predicts all (laughs) of it. Like, it's the rise and fall of, you know, the ascension of the nerd in 20 minutes (laughs) predicted in 2002. (laughs) Oh, Christ. Um, Speaking of... Ernest Klein. He's in a documentary um, about the E.T. video game that I saw uh, where... which It's just a terrible documentary, frankly. (laughs) I don't want to... But it's one of those things where it's like, we're going to prove that the Atari landfill was real. Do you remember this? 
Yeah, this yeah, like a they big, dumped ET games. Yeah, like they thing. dug it up and like they found a bunch of them, and then they they were they were even still able to play some of the ones they dug up. <laughs> and it was like a big deal, and everyone was like, "Holy shit!" But it was like it's one of those things where, yeah, everyone knows that that's a thing that really happened. <laughs> but the documentary like treats it like it's a mystery that like we're gonna go prove that this once happened that Atari was once so big. And then fell so hard that this this myth isn't fake, and it was like no Atari admitted this, like everyone knows this happened. And Ernest Klein shows up in it. He's like hanging out with like George R. R. Martin. Oh God, at, like, George, no! At like his like theater, I, I think George R. R. Martin is very, just being a very very kind person. Um, for a guy who writes his really, really strange books, he seems to be a deeply empathetic person. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, he's just hanging out, and then, like, Ernest Klein like, leaves to get in his DeLorean with, like, a stuffed, like, alien, like, figure, and then, like, drives to the, where the Atari landfill is. And I just, like, I've thought, I've had that image, like, in my head forever. I think Ernest Klein is my enemy. I don't know. I don't know the guy, so I can't, like, I don't want to pick a fight with him. I, I'm going to pick a fight with him. Okay. I don't trust him. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I don't want to be, like, because there's that thing where it's, like, the art you hate, the person must be equally bad. Oh, yeah, that's the, you're you're not wrong. I'm just... Cause it's like, like there's gotta be something. But it's like you know, Colin Trevorrow, who's like who is my nemesis basically. <laughs> like, yeah, and he's and that's a guy who does not give a good interview. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've read an interview with him where he comes across as a good guy. But I also don't know him. He might be a fine person. I don't also need him to be like awful. And I just you know. There's always that hope yeah, that well, maybe... The work of Ernest Klein is my enemy. Yeah. Have you ever read uh If you haven't, don't, because I want to save it for the Ready Player One episode we record in five years. Um, <laughs> have you ever read Nerd Porn by no. Ernest Klein, which is like... I can't remember if it's like a poem or an essay he did. Oh, it was a thing online, huh? I, I think. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I don't know in detail, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I'm gonna save that because I do want to get into the sexual politics of Ready Player One. <laughs> okay, and yeah, that's a, um, a a very uh, good thing to bring up then. But yeah, for the listener, um, if you want to lose all faith that we live in a just or sane society, go read that. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, Ernest Klein is a. I don't know. I don't know much about him. I just know his writing's bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, if anything, I I actually do have very negative feelings about the director of Fanboys, Kyle Newman. Yeah. Because that dude was just like, he went on like a, a rant on the podcast about like how critics were bought off to give positive reviews about Last Jedi. And it's just like, no, dude, that's not. Can you imagine? You don't think, you don't think critics are like starving to eat every day? Yeah. Can you imagine? doing that <laughs> like <laughs> you ever watch these people like I really I like I don't even 
like, every now and then I get that morbid curiosity to, like, click on, like, one of these bad faith argument videos, and I maybe watch, like, 30 seconds and then turn it off. <laughs> and, but then, like, I just see, like, the screenshots of them, and, like, I, like, it's, you kind of just want to be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I might do that exact thing about this podcast if I look back in 10 years. <laughs> So, like, you know, glass houses, I might want to be careful. But at least I'm trying to be positive. You know? At least I'm trying to, like, enrich my life and others. I defended little Nikki, for God's sakes. (laughs) Little Nikki is significantly better than fanboys. There you go. That's insane. When I was watching fanboys, when I was watching fanboys, I was like... Little Nikki's looking pretty good right now. Here's the real test. <laughs> is going overboard better than fanboys? Yeah, so. because I could tell going overboard came from a place of just, like, not having the resources or, or like, not not to be rude, but, like, even maybe the know-how of how to use those yeah. resources or whatever. You know, it is not an evil film. It's just like, eh, it didn't work at all. Yeah. Fanboys is is is... is, is the opposite of humanity. Mm-hmm. It is the opposite of empathy. It is the opposite of ET. So to bring it back to there and your point about how, uh, ultimately I think this is one of the through lines we have on, on these retrospectives that we're looking back at these, these like kind of cultural touchstones or, or films and art that kind of like impact our lives in a positive way. And, uh, how sometimes we, we, we have to move on from them and yeah. we don't always need them to be what they were. Um, when we first discovered them, you know, or maybe sometimes like, like you mentioned with ET, like it never really clicked for you. And then you were watching this last time and you, you discovered something new in it. Yeah. Like to unearth from it, you know, Why? Th- there's no, there's no formula for this and there's not, it's not always important to hold on to the way that things are or have been. Well, I think there's this thing that happens when we all grow up where at some point, you realize, and this might be a little like, little, I don't know, if my, I might be using the wrong words here, but you can't just consume anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this might be a very like rich, like, you know, Western point of view because, you know, other countries maybe don't have this problem. Maybe people on like a lower end of uh, the class system maybe don't but when you live a fairly comfortable middle class existence uh for most of your life uh you you spend most of your childhood just consuming other things <laughs> and then at some point you you know it's that realization that your consequences have actions and it starts informing everything about your life and i think there's that there's a part of us that we violently react to that realization, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just think about, I mean, not even to bring it to more, but like, think about all the people right now with the coronavirus who are like bragging about violating just basic suggestions and how to make things easier as a rejection that they should hold any responsibility over it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And Mm -hmm. I think that's a response to A, like, realizing that how much of the world is out of your control, and B, realizing that you are only responsible for your actions, which is a very difficult thing to deal with. (laughs) That, uh, that, like, so much in your life is ultimately on you. 
And, you know, that's a very tough thing to shoulder. And I think that's what breeds kind of the the dark side of everything. And I think that's why it's weird when you come back to something like E.T., where I, I think that's why maybe I had such a difficulty connecting to it, because I can't just let a movie in the way you let E.T. in when you're a child, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you Like, now I, I have to have some guards up. Even when I go in a movie and, like, I talk about sometimes I go in and I deliberately lower my guards because I want to enjoy a movie. I mean, I'm doing that with basically every Sandler movie. Like, <laughs> I go in being like, okay, I'm going to find a way to like this movie. Like, that's the challenge every time I watch them. <laughs> yeah, and I need to start adopting that a little bit because I don't want to just keep being the guy who's – a Debbie Down on them. I Although guess I, I mean, have enjoyed no, most of our conversations on them. <laughs> take whatever angle you want. I'm just I'm just saying that's what I do. But even then, like there are some guards you can't let down. You know, mm-hmm. even as much as you try, there's just some things where you're like, there is a hard line, and that usually in Adam Sandler films, it tends to be a lot of the homophobia and transphobia, <laughs> which is like the one thing that like you just can't ignore. And I think there's something to that where we're seeing that more and more these days because we're realizing how much of our culture just turns a blind eye to so much, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, an E.T. I think is a perfect example of that where it's a movie, any movie set in the suburbs is inadvertently about a lot of American biases without the movie intending it. Almost, almost, like, every case, the movie does not intend that. Maybe the exceptions, like, David Lynch films. Yeah, well, David Lynch. Someone who's, like, more cynical. Yeah. Uh, Of course, David Lynch. But, again, he, but he's, like, reacting, even David Lynch is, like, reacting to kind of a a cinema and a television style that's, like, very, like, leave it to beaver-ish. Or, like, hey, I mean, think of this movie really does kind of like you can you know it's very easy to draw the line from this film to like stranger things oh yeah the first season is just et yeah well it's like, like et the thing et the thing and like carrie yeah and and it and it the tv miniseries oh, of course. and of course and, and of course in those ones stranger things is also more your memory of those things as to pose as opposed to just being straight imitations of it you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is I like, partially think why Stranger Things, all flaws considered, kind of works. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't do a review of the third season on the thing. I, I should do that. Sometime. You should. Um, interesting watching um, Russian paranoia suddenly come back in a lot of our culture. Oh yeah, uh, kind of the weak spot for me that season. Yeah. But whatever, whatever. Yeah, I, it's hard to find an angle on Stranger Things that isn't like, I liked it, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, third season maybe the most fun I've ever had watching the show. Also, the most problematic. Yeah, I would say that. I contain multitudes. <laughs> third season at least hinted to me that those guys are at least trying. Yeah, no, that that's the one where they're like, okay, fine, gloves off. <laughs> yeah, like season two felt like them just going through the motions again. Mm-hmm. Or, and then season three kind of felt like they want to like be better, but they don't totally know how. But yeah, it's like, yeah. It's a good faith effort. Like, thanks for at least trying. 
Yeah, the the next one. If that's not like the last one, then they really need to start. Well, then they. I think like, they said really trying something. I think they said the next season is going to be the last one. Okay, good. Go all out. I um, mean, but then of course I'm willing to bet that it's going to be like Stranger Things, the next generation or something, because oh, they're not God. they're not fucking letting that money pit go. Yeah, yeah. That's why there's. That's why Netflix now has like 17 shows called Narcos. Yeah. <laughs> E.T. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us. E.T. the extraterrestrial. Not not to wrap up too early, but like I don't know, we we can get into a little more stuff. But I will say, uh, we're, yeah, we can talk about a little more. All, all cynicism aside, I think it is also important to bring up the more controversial aspects of E.T., which does go a little bit back towards its production. If you wanted to talk about that now, mm-hmm. all right. Remind me how to pronounce the name again. Okay, let me see. <clears throat> It's embarrassing. I'm terrible. I can't even pronounce like American names. So, <laughs> all right, ready? Satyajit Ray. Satyajit Ray. Uh huh. All right. So yeah, for those who don't know, um, Satyajit Ray, a name I needed no help pronouncing, um, director of the Apu trilogy. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. <laughs> I don't know why I had to throw that in there. Um, director of the Apu trilogy, um, in like 67, I believe, uh, was going around Hollywood with a script called The Alien, which is a a script that I haven't read. I don't know if it's available. I was gonna, but it was like, it's one of those things where once, once I decided just fuck it, let's just record it, I didn't get to like half the shit I wanted to initially. Um, but it's a script that he accuses E.T. of copying said et would not have been possible without the script of the alien being available throughout the united states spielberg says he was in high school when it circulated but there's a lot of evidence that that is not true Mm. and to the point where like i even think like martin scorsese said at one point that uh spielberg owed a lot to that script so let's talk about throwing your friend under the bus but uh uh yeah, there's uh, if you read, there's a Times of India article that points out a lot of parallels in that script and Close Encounters, um, including like the description of the alien is very similar, and I believe there's like stuff with like a flower, um, like making a flower like grow, which becomes a big thing in the film ET. Uh, hard to say if it was directly lifted from it, but yeah. Um, but Spielberg does not mention that in any interviews ever. Mm-hmm. And of course you have to consider the whole Night Skies thing, which was its own independent project. I wouldn't be shocked if Spielberg had read a synopsis of that script and kind of just internalized it and then helped it become E.T. But yeah, you know. Sometimes that happens. And of course, it didn't. it's not all E.T. There's all the people that worked on Night Skies. There's all the people that worked on Close Encounters, which was the forerunner for Night Skies, which is the forerunner for E.T. 
And then, of course, uh, Melissa, Melissa Matheson wrote the script for E.T. So she doesn't tend to get as much credit. Um, but, you know, it's a thing where there's oh. a, a lot of, uh, you know, I hate to say it where it's like that thing of like sometimes there's like parallel thinking and a lot of like just weird like mixing coming together. But, uh, yeah, it's, a shame, it's just a shame that that other movie doesn't exist, I think. Be interesting if yeah. we live in a world where both yeah. movies um, could exist. Uh, just a little bit of production about the alien. I, I could not find a screenplay online either, so I'll definitely be tweeting out to everyone on the planet and be like, "Hey, if anyone has uh, any leads on this, please let us know." Uh, the alien uh, was uh, also uh, going to be produced by Columbia Pictures. It was going to be a U.S. and India co-production, which is not that common. So that would have, I think, it would have been a, a, a big, big deal. like step for yeah, it would have been a big deal for sure. And um, Marlon Brando was at one point attached, yeah. but he dropped out. And then uh, James Colburn was going to be in the film, and then uh, eventually uh, Satyajit Ray became like disillusioned with the whole process, and uh, Columbia wanted to like revive the project several times in the 1970s and 80s, but uh, he was the, the director was basically tapped out and just went home to Calcutta. Yeah. So, so like, and that's there. important to emphasize. I'm glad you emphasized that. Like, it really it wasn't just like he wrote a script. Like mm-hmm. this, there was serious. It seriously came close to production several times. So it wasn't like this nebulous thing where it was like, oh, you know, what a weird coincidence. Like, no, this was a movie that almost happened. Mm-hmm. So it it doesn't make it entirely impossible that Spielberg might have known about it. Yeah. yeah. Let me actually check really quick who was was et produced by columbia no no et is universal but close encounters i believe is columbia that's right and then of course the the, the raiders right before this too mm. no raiders is uh, paramount what the fuck what am i thinking columbia which one's columbia i said close encounters is columbia no, yeah, no, I'm like, what is their logo? Columbia is, I thought they were the mountain. No, no, um, they're, Columbia is, uh, you know, um, the Statue of Liberty, kind of. Oh, that's, that's, that's right, but okay. But that's someone else, that's like the, uh, I can't remember, because that, that figure is something else, but it's, it looks like the Statue of Liberty. Um, well, it's Lady Liberty. Yeah, but it's like, but there's, Lady. there's another name for that. Torch lady, according to Google. All right. Uh, just kidding. That's just on a picture. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, sorry to t- totally just derail that, but that was really bugging me. I could not picture Columbia at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the alien. Uh, some further history reading for anyone interested. Uh, I have not seen the Apu trilogy, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm not a real cinephile because I have not done that, but I believe Criterion has it, so I guess I'll have to check that out. Now that we're going to have a lot of free time on our hands. So, to bring it back down to earth for yeah. a second. Oh, yeah. Now, if you want to catch up on all the happy Amblin films. Yep. Now's the time to do it. Columbia is the female personification of the United States. <laughs> it was also a historic name applied to the Americas and to the New World. The association has given rise to the name of many persons, places, objects, institutions, and companies. For example, Columbia University, the District of Columbia, the ship, um, Columbia Redivia, 
the Columbia River and as Columbia Pictures. Images of the Statue of Liberty erected in 1886 uh, largely displaced um, personified Columbia as the female symbol of the United States. I think I got that because isn't isn't that the name of the floating city in Bioshock Infinite? That's right. I think that's how, that's I think how I made the connection. Yeah, lots of Bioshock talk lately on the timeline too. Yeah, well, we're in a very Fall of Rapture era. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is right, this is the point right before all the people start turning into splicers. <laughs> oh god if someone apparently the bioshock script is like finally like starting to leak out there so if anyone has that too yeah i need the script for the alien i need the script for the bioshock <laughs> movie thank you listeners i am jeff bezos and i am here to ask you a question <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that's a, you know what the biggest problem with uh bioshock is aside from all the other problems is that? Oh, are you are you a Bioshock uh, naysayer? No, here's the thing. I love Bioshock, but like I do recognize its flaws. Okay, no, but, no I mean I I agree. There's got some, especially Infinite. Yeah, Infinite's got like even more, and it's like I know, and but I think all of them, even Infinite, are like if you just changed a few things, this could be really good. Yeah, I mean, what sinks Infinite is by the end, it's like oh, both sides are yeah, which bad. is such a miscalculated thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that breaks that game. It, it like so snaps it, and then it's also like it has nothing to do with what they're telling. Like, yeah. So, like everything else, for the most part, I, I think Infinite is like a great game. Bioshock, I think, still a great game. Yeah. Like, and then you, you start diving in a little deeper. I want to revisit got some stuff to work out. I want to revisit Bioshock Two because I haven't played that in forever. And I want to see, because I remember not liking that game when I played it. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, uh, that one's gotten quite the revival online lately. Yeah. I just remember, I just remember, I just remember thinking the villain of that one wasn't super interesting. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, but the problem with Bioshock, aside from all the others, is that there are no self-made millionaire billionaires that are as interesting as Andrew Ryan. <laughs> They're all like boring ass motherfuckers. Or <laughs> just like evil in like all the like like most cruel but like banal ways possible. So it's not even like cool to like see him go down. They're just a bunch of dorks who don't even realize that they're fucking like fascists. <laughs> Might be a little cathartic to kill one of them in Bioshock, though. Yeah, you know. Oh, yeah. It's I mean, even though it's not really your decision, whatever. Yeah, but you, you can always watch that clip of the, you know, golf club to the face. Yeah. So that's a cool moment. Mm-hmm. It was full of cool moments. I just wish it, like, worked a little better. <laughs> I can't um, wait, though, until we get a when they finally decide to do like another Bioshock and then the, the people who make it are going to have to come out and be like, don't worry. It's an apolitical game. Oh my God. That's going to be so funny. And I've heard that dude talk Ken Levine. Mm-hmm. I think he would say that. Yeah, but he, so. he, he's not, he won't be involved. He, he's like, he sold the company. Oh, like, okay. But also oh, they're, they're definitely doing that then. Yeah. But it's like, he was at least like, he was one of those guys where he's like, I don't agree with objectivism, but I'm kind of a libertarian. <laughs> I remember him saying that at one point. 
and uh, but it's it's like it's that thing where for for maybe not working, I think one of the best things Bioshock did was that it just made political subtext straight up text. Mm-hmm. So just so we could like kind of open the floodgates to be like, no, politics are totally welcome in the discussion of video games. Yeah. It's just going to be funny when the franchise that basically did that is going to release an installment that is going to be advertised as being apolitical. <laughs> so, and you know, there's always people, it's like that idiot online who's like, I bet you think RoboCop's political. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking moron. Yeah. So, eh, we live in interesting times. None of that has to do with E.T., though. No, but I feel like we got there, considering how usually yeah. this goes. Uh, I just feel like... We got I, there like pretty the, naturally. The unfortunate vibe I got from this was that I felt like Ronald Reagan would love E.T. <laughs> you know? Like... Uh-huh. That's, like, the unfortunate thing. And here, to, to end on a positive note now, because I think... This, this turned out to be pretty good. I'm I'm quite happy with this. But I think... The one thing that ultimately will always save E.T. from all that stuff, because all that stuff we talked about and all the stuff you're mentioning about Ronald Reagan loving it and stuff, that's all important. But the baseline sentimentality of E.T. is the same as understanding Superman, is that a child can understand why Superman is great. A more cynical, uh, lived-in adult, not so much all the time. But the same thing goes for E.T., where there's like a, a beautiful simplicity to that story and that character and that journey that a child can immediately attach themselves to that. And then as you get older, you have to unpack a lot more around that. And if it works for you, you could still have that attachment. And I think that's pretty cool. That's a really good point, Diego. Unfortunately, it reminded me of that scene in the movie Up in the Air. No. Where he's like, no. where they start talking about no. like why kids love athletes. You remember that scene? No, I don't. And I think it's the J.K. Simmons who's getting laid off. And he's like, because they fuck supermodels. He's like, no, that's why we love athletes. Like, why do kids love athletes? And then he talks, and he goes on a speech, and it's basically a way to make a guy comfortable with with uh, getting fired. Oh, no. That is That was not the intent. Of yeah, I mean. Optimism. That's, I think, ending. that's just, you know. The poison pill of all culture being made made by the United States. I mean... Oh, God. A lot of our movies kind of go like, you know, actually there's a goodness and all this stuff, which I think are true, but it's also being delivered to us by a society that is responsible for more evil in the world than we'll ever fathom. Mm. It's a shame. And I don't know how to reconcile with that. And I think that's why it makes revisiting E.T. so difficult. But also in a way where I still got a lot out of it. Yes. All right. Well, that was a stacked episode. Yeah, there's for... a lot, lot, to, lot going on here. We barely talked about anything that actually happened in the film. Okay, we could do a little bit of for that. For one, I want to point out that the monster E.T. looks grotesque. <laughs> 
and I don't know why it works. <laughs> I don't know why I feel for E.T. He's a disgusting monster of a creature. <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. I have to see. I once ran a poll. Okay. Do you think E.T. and Jabba the Hutt would feel similar if you touched them? Ooh, that's not something I would like to think about. <laughs> That's not... Well, my favorite response to that question was that, uh, this is from Will at Silent Dawn LB on Twitter. E.T. is wet and Jabba is dry, which I disagree with. I think they're both very wet and moist. I don't know, I think E.T., I think E.T.'s wet, but Jabba's more slime. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. So, Jabba's, E.T.'s then... e. wet, Jabba's sticky. Yeah. And then uh, Diego Luna is just in the corner, like, weighing his options. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, that's another weird thing about this movie, is that there's an odd, like, deliberate, like, off-putting vibe you get from E.T. that somehow makes him more... De- I don't know, this movie does some fucking tightrope walk that I can't wrap my head around. I really don't know how this movie works. And it's one of those things where it's like, is does it really just work because it's so innocent? <laughs> we're like, that might be the answer, but it's like, you kind of be like, no, it's got to be something more than that. Mm-hmm. It's like you want something that stirs such big emotions to be equally as big, and then it's like, no, maybe it just did all the things right, <sighs> in like really subtle ways that you don't notice. Yeah, maybe it is that simple. And maybe that's it for this episode, Matt. Yep. Yeah, good good film. Would recommend it. Although I guess we got a point out that E.T. famously did not win Best Picture at the Oscars. Oh, what won that year? 82, right? Gandhi. Oh. Um, and Richard Attenborough, the director of Gandhi, said, I was certain that not only E.T. would win, but that it should win. It was inventive, Whoa. powerful, and wonderful. I make more mundane movies. Wow. That's a statement. Yeah, which might be the reason why Richard Attenborough is in Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) Up, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh Uh-huh. In addition to the many impressed critics, President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan were moved by it after a screening at the White House on June 27th, 1982. Princess Diana was in tears watching it. Um, in ninth, in September seventeenth, nineteen eighty-two, it was screened at the United Nations, and Spielberg received a UN Peace Medal. Cinema Score wow. reported that the audience gave the film a rare A plus. <laughs> Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> how do you how do you how is that in the same paragraph? As Spielberg received the UN Peace Medal, also Cinema Score A plus. Well, they are of equal importance. <laughs> yes, <obviously>. so clearly. <laughs> wow. Um. Yeah. I think that's just like it's that weird thing where like this movie, it's like there's an odd danger to like such empathy, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, here's a good one though. Political comment. 
conservative political commentator George Will was one of the few to pan the film, feeling it spread subversive notions about childhood and science. Well, if it's a conservative critic, then, you know, E.T. is an immigrant. Yeah. So he's, he's not going to have positive feelings about yeah, immigration. This is, a, this is a movie about um, hiding and sheltering an immigrant. Also like Superman. George Will won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977. Mm. All right, time to wrap it up. We got, we got a lot of great guys. Oh, right here. George do, do Will. More, more. George Will, if you click on his Wikipedia page, has a whole section titled Controversy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is always a great sign. <laughs> An even better sign is that the third thing listed under Controversy is rape victimization comments. Nope. Okay, Matt, where can the people find you? I'm at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. But and more importantly, more importantly, <laughs> I'll be right here. Cause I'm because I'm on lockdown because of the fucking coronavirus. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere, fuckers. And you can follow me on twitter.com at the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, specifically those last three. Uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and check out the Patreon. Wait a minute. Episode access to Wait. Uh, the rest of Happy Amblin. Shut the fuck up. Hmm. Did we go longer on Little Nicky? <laughs> I think so. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for, baby! No. USA! USA! <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional. <laughs>